0: Take a Bible and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you want to use one of these Bibles in the pews, that's page 981. As we continue uh, going through the book of Philippians. I was uh, thinking when Dr. Patterson was speaking that we're coming up to graduation time within the next couple of weeks and uh, having had uh, you know, one of our children graduate from the University of Georgia, I remember being there for that graduation in Sanford Stadium and all the tens of thousands of people and, and the thousands of students. Last year, some of you were there, but the speaker at the graduation ceremony, and it takes an hour for the students all to enter the stadium and be seated before the program begins. You got to want it. <laughs> And the speaker last year was the president of an international corporation. And we all know that typically people don't attend a graduation ceremony to hear a speaker. So the brief, brief is good in a situation like that. Well, somebody forgot to give him the memo, so he went on and on and on. And someone, I guess had had enough, and began to clap and just like a wave, it went through the entire stadium and he went and just sat down. And the applaud continued. So if you ever clap during one of my sermons, I will not think it's out of appreciation, If you've been with us uh, for the past couple of months as we've been going through Philippians, um, or if you've not been with us, let me just tell you some of the highlights. In chapter one, the main theme is God will finish the work that he's begun within us. Second chapter talks about how we're to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And Paul gives us the example of Christ as a chief servant and the chief example of humiliation. Then in chapter three, which I hope to finish today, We see how the Apostle Paul, even though he's in a Roman prison, when he writes this, it's been four years since he was there and planted the church in the city of Philippi, he along with some others, he says that he counts all all things as loss in order to gain Christ, and that he's pressing on toward the prize of the call of, of God in Christ Jesus. With those thoughts in mind, I'll begin reading in verse 12, and then we'll focus on And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And now for today. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. One of the marks of a great teacher is the ability to illustrate abstract truth in a concrete way. To be able to build mental images in the minds of students, to move them from a place of ignorance or confusion uh, to a place of understanding. As I think back to my teachers, and thankfully the Lord gave me many through school and college and seminary, but one that I appreciated the least that's my way of saying the worst teacher I ever had had a photographic memory and if we ask a, a question and this was uh, you never know who's watching this so I won't, I won't be too specific but uh, if you ask a question rather than trying to explain it the response back was if you look on page 113 in the bottom left quadrant you'll see the answer to that question. I struggled the in, entire time and, uh, in, in that class. The best Two teachers, I recall, were college professors. One was Dr. Stowe, and he taught geology. When he was explaining ocean currents and how waves work, he began to kind of jog across the front of the room, and it was a big lecture class with a couple of hundred students in it. And then he allowed himself to trip and fall, showing how waves form in the ocean. <laughs> and, and I but still to this day, I remember that. That was one of many things that, that he would do to try to get these abstract truths across. The other professor that uh, had the biggest impact on me from his teaching standpoint was a biology professor named Dr. Graham. I had him for two semesters, uh, human biology and then plant biology. I heard him lecture three times a week for a full year, two two semesters, never looked at a note, not once, and it was this had two or three hundred students in it. And yet his lectures were in perfect outlines. He literally, and I'm, I'm making this up, he wrote our textbook. The textbook we used was authored by him. So they, they used uh, uh, illustrations when, when talking about uh, aspects of biology. He, he would describe it so that we could, we could understand. Jesus was a master illustrator. Look at the flowers of the field. Look at the birds of the air. A sower went out to sow. A certain man had two sons and many more stories just like that. Do you know what God uses to teach you and me about him? Of course, he uses his word. He uses other people as illustrations. And that's why Paul in this opening verse, verse 17, can say, follow my example. Join in imitating me, he says in verse 17. How does God illustrate and communicate about himself. He does it through transforming people, through transformation. I looked up the word transformation just as far as a literal definition, and it says to change in essence, to change in nature or in character. Now there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 3 that says this, and we, speaking of believers, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. <clears throat> so when you come to faith in Christ, when you are saved, when you are converted, you begin to be transformed. God is the one; the Holy Spirit is the one who is transforming you into the likeness of God. It, it's going to happen. I mean, it's not an uh, an if, and or but. It will happen. That transformation will occur. So we are living illustrations, according to that verse in Corinthians, of the Lord Jesus himself. So the Apostle Paul could say, join in imitating me. He's not egotistical here. He's not saying I'm perfect. He's saying I'm being transformed. Those around me are being transformed. And therefore, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's, again, not saying he's perfect. When he uses the word example, it means a pattern of life. He's saying, look at our pattern of life, imitate that. Well, what, was, what were aspects of that pattern? Well, we know from the previous chapters. These I'm going to name for you are some of the patterns or were characteristics of his pattern of life. He thanked God in all his remembrance of them. He had confidence the Lord would continue that work which he had begun within them. He wanted their love to abound in real knowledge and discernment. He viewed his circumstances through the grid of whether the gospel was being advanced or not. That was a pattern. He viewed life as an opportunity to serve Christ, and he viewed death as gain. He counted all things as loss in order to gain Christ. He wanted to do all things without grumbling and complaining, and he was trying to press on toward likeness. Now, if you spend time with a person like that, with a man or a woman like that, then that pattern of life is worthy of imitating. Now, the Lord knows you and I need visual aids. We need illustrations, because we need to see truth lived out in flesh and blood as examples. Again, not of perfection, but of direction that this person is heading in that direction. As a high school student, uh, a a fellow that was about five years older than me, John Musselman, who later became a youth pastor at, at my home church, and is still a close friend of mine to today, and a mentor. He came to me one summer, he was a college student and was home for the summer, and he said, Randy Pope and I, they were close friends and roommates, he said, Randy and I want to get some younger guys and just pour our lives into him to meet all this summer and to teach you the things that God has taught us, to to disciple you, and would you be interested in doing that with me? And I looked smart, right? Yeah. I said, no, I wouldn't be interested. (laughs) A year later, I went back to him and said, you know that offer you made to me that day at the YMCA? He said, yeah, I remember. I said, I'd like to take you up on that now. And and we began that process. Barbara and I, several years ago, I was off on a Sunday, and we said, "Let's go to a church we've never been to." And we we went to a, a mega church up in Atlanta. And uh, the service was overwhelming. I mean, it was uh, it was quite a production. Thousands of people were there. And so we got on one of the uh, shuttles to go back to the parking deck where where our car was and there was a, a fellow looked to be in his mid-twenties and there were some young women that looked about the same age on the shuttle. There were about 30 of us on the shuttle. And I was sitting there and he awkwardly was trying to make conversation with them and I could tell they were very uncomfortable. And he he uh, didn't know what to make of it. So I was, I was sitting there and I was watching this and when we got back to the to our car, I said, you know, Barbara, that guy is not going to be helped by going to a church like that. Because if he just goes in and, and uh, let's just say, just attends the worship service, that guy needs some men to disciple him, just by the way I saw him trying to interact with them. Now, you may say, well, that sounds harsh and critical. It's just my observation I think it's this principle, though, that comes from God uses people to change people. And the primary place that happens is in the home, of course. And that's why in Deuteronomy, we have these words to parents. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, today we may put it, you shall talk about them when you're in your car or you're going on a trip or after the ball game or wherever it is or as you sit around a dinner table or as you go through the drive through You'll talk about these things of God. Well, why does God work this way? Why does God use community? Why does he use other believers to illustrate his truth even in our own lives? because we cannot really understand what we've never seen. I was taught as a growing Christian, you're to be a spiritual leader in your home. What does that mean? I mean, I I, I believe that. I never saw that. So when I never saw family devotional, Now, I'm not faulting my parents. My dad was not a believer. My mother was. So I think in the church we can say, well, you need to do this. And the person's listening saying, I don't really know what you're talking about. I think I do, but I've never seen it. God intends that non-Christians also will see the power of the gospel in the people they know. And only when that happens can they see God himself. This had happened with Paul. Remember, his name was Saul of Tarsus, later changed to the name Paul. But he had examples that had made an impact on him. He was there when the first Christian was martyred, Stephen. Stephen, the deacon that we find from Acts chapter 6. And he's, he's stoned to death by the very court, orders it, that had condemned Jesus, the Sanhedrin. And Paul Saul was an eyewitness to this and commended it and even made sure, said, hey, you can put your belongings right here, and I'll watch over them while you pick up stones to kill him. And it says in the Bible he was in hearty support of what had happened. He would have said, yeah, good job. We killed him. Later, he's converted. He lives the rest of his life making reference to the fact, with regret, that he had been a persecutor of the church. But if we don't think Stephen's example played a part in Saul's conversion, to see a person, even as they were dying, as he was dying, say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then to look up and say, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. This is an important principle. So Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 11. Now... Let me press on. In the next two verses, he's going to say, don't follow the example of these others. We come now to this contrast. And he says, for many, in verse 18, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So now he's going to say, be imitators of us, but don't walk like these people. Honestly, we're not sure who he's talking about. I've got probably 15 commentaries, scholastic commentaries, all sorts of commentaries on Philippians. And pretty much those who've spent their lives studying these things saying, we're not sure who he's talking about. They may have been the Judaizers, those wanting believers to still obey the Old Testament law. They may have been false teachers. They may have just been opponents uh, to the Christians. We're, We're not sure, but this marked their lives. First, he called them enemies of the cross. Then he says their God is their belly or stomach. That's a word that, a broader word that means sensual appetites. They, they're concerned only with their own creature comforts and with pleasing themselves. Another aspect, he says, they have their mind set on earthly things. They're, they're only thinking about possessions and reputations and position in this life. No, no thought of the afterlife, focusing only on the here and the now. And then he says about them, their destiny of such is destruction, in verse 19. Speaking of hell, the place where God will cast those who do not know him, it's inevitable when they glory in what they really should find shameful. We live in a day like that, don't we? When it says they glory in their shame, it means the thing that you should be ashamed about, you're boasting about. Paul denounces them, but not out of hatred, not out of callousness. He says that he he grieves, he weeps over them. It says in verse 18, even with tears. So here are these two contrasts. Imitate us, follow the pattern of our lives. Don't imitate them. Be aware that they're headed to destruction. So what are we to do? Well, we're to think about home. Verses 20 and 21 it tells us there, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. Some important context is always important. I'll remind you again, the Philippians lived in the city of Philippi, named after the uncle of Alexander the Great. And it was a Roman colony. So even though it was far from Rome, uh, people still lived there by Roman law. They acted like they were in Rome. They dressed like they were in Rome. The architecture was Romanesque. They used Latin in all their official documents. But most significant, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you had all the privileges of being a citizen of the city of Rome. So they had dual citizenship, you might say. We live in a day when many countries honor dual citizenship. It's pretty, it's pretty common. Um, that is, a, you can have a legal status in two different countries, and be regarded as citizens of both. But here, the country he's talking about is we live in this world, but we have another country, and that's where we're headed, and that's heaven. We eagerly await that, he says because we're waiting for the one who is coming from heaven, and that's our Lord Jesus. What will he do? Verse 21 says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Remember at the beginning of the sermon? I hope. had not been that long, has it? The word transformation, the definition of transformation, to change in essence, nature, and character. Well, that's what's going to happen to us. It's happening now as we grow in Christ. It began when we became Christians. It continues through the process of sanctification, either until you die or Christ comes again, Christian. But at death, that process will not stop. It will go into hyperdrive. Whatever transformation we've experienced now is going to be dwarfed by what will happen then. It says in 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, that's what I read to you earlier, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. If you were to ask me, tell me the gospel, tell me one word that you think is the essence of the gospel, my opinion would be it's the word substitute. Christ took our sin, he took my sin, he gives me his righteousness, he's a substitute, died in my place. If you would ask me, tell me in one word, what does it mean to grow as a Christian? I would say transformation. Transformation of our thoughts, transformations of our values, transformations of our desires. When you die, many of us don't think about this. So I wanna explain a little bit and urge you to read some things on that. When a person dies, a believer, their soul goes immediately into the presence of God but not the body. We're not sure the state that that person is in. It's not a... It, it, it's a soul, it's a soul from some of the teaching in the New Testament that's able to see and hear and so forth, and yet your body remains here. That is called the intermediate state. That's not the final destination. Then, when God sets up the new heavens and the new earth, We will enter into what's called the eternal heaven, when you will have a glorified body. Now, I don't want you to think about your present body. It's it's much more encompassing than that. It compares it to the body of Christ in his resurrected state. What's interesting about that is when the disciples saw him that first Easter, and then in the 40 days following that, none of them immediately recognized it. They only recognized him by two ways, what he did and what he said. And when they heard what he said and saw what they they did, they said, it's the Lord. And it says their eyes were open. So in some way, that body, that resurrected body was very different from the previous body. But what does he say to Thomas? The wounds. It still had scars. So it was similar, but it was different. God has a glorified body for you. We'll have that glorified body. That is the eternal heaven. So this body, (laughs) that word lowly, that's the understatement in, in the scriptures. You think about this body. It ages. The glorious body will not. The lowly body is subject to sickness and to injury. The glorious body is not. This body is natural. That body is supernatural all the billions of prayers for healing through the ages, they're going to be answered. Not yet, in most cases, but they will be answered. In Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, which I hardly recommend, he's got a section uh, toward the back. It's called A Life That Gets Us Ready. If you and I are to live with anticipation like he mentions here, He says, ask yourself these questions. Do I reflect daily on my own mortality? Do I daily realize there are only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that I and every person I know will go to one or the other? Do I daily remind myself that this world is not my home and that everything in it will burn, leaving behind only what is eternal? Do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct influence on the world to come? Do I daily realize that my life is being examined by God, the audience of one, and that the only appraisal of my life that will ultimately matter is his? And do I daily reflect on the fact that my ultimate home will be the new earth where I will see God and serve him as a resurrected being in a resurrected human society? So your citizenship right now, Christian, is in heaven. And God wants you to live now with an awareness of that. You're thinking about that's my home, that's where I'm headed. This is temporary, this body is temporary, it's a lowly body that will be a glorious body at that time. So, our names are on the citizenship rolls there, and our place is secure. I want to leave you one thought. And I, uh, my wife, I don't have a team of sermon researchers. (laughs) I hear of these pastors, I have teams of researchers. you know, I don't have a green room back here, you know. So <laughs> I have a wife, though, <laughs> and she's my sermon research team. And she knows more about John Piper's writings than he knows. And she will send me if she knows, oh, I see you're preaching on this from Philippians chapter 3. You need to listen to this. So she sent me this podcast from Johnny and Friends this week, which was a telephone interview with John Piper. And uh, it was profound. Apparently, he's written a new book about the return of Christ. And they were discussing this. But the woman who was the interviewer, I, I wasn't familiar with her. I assume she's disabled herself from the way that she talked. They were talking about disabilities. And having a disabled child, I'd be, as you know, I, I was thinking about very clued in on what they were talking about. And she made this comment. Often the healings in the New Testament, when you think about disability, these people were cut off from community. You think about the um, this is now my words, the gathering demoniac, the boy who threw himself into the fire, the, the paralytics by the waters that, you know, would stir every once in a while. These people had no relationship with normal people. And I was thinking about our son, who's been in our garage for three years since COVID started in his daycare. So that's what we've got a garage with a TV and the heat and air and and uh, it's, it's kind of like a playroom. And that's where he spends his day if it's not in the car. Now he, that bothers me, it doesn't bother him. But I thought he, he has more community than most in his state because of his mother <laughs> and not his father. Uh, you know, she, she does 99.9% of the work with him. But the woman interviewing John Piper said, you know, these people are not only going to be restored to uh, overcome the disability, whatever it may be, that probably all of us will have if we live to be old enough, some type, mental or physical. He said they were also restored by Jesus to community with others. I'd never thought about that. Heaven will be more than just a glorious body. It will be a glorious body in perfect community with others. No arguments. No arguments. No wondering did he just lie to me? Or did I just lie to that person? No more sinning against well, he got angry at me and I you know do not I d I don't I didn't see that coming. All that will be gone. All right, I'm gonna abruptly end right there.